Hello and welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today. We're looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China, starting from about 1839. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. And for me, this podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. As always, if you'd like to support the podcast, please, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can join the Substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. Please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Uh, last week, we talked about the storming of the Dagu forts in the Second Opium War and additional treaties forced on China at gunpoint. This week, we're looking at what foreigners were up to, you know, enforcing what they felt were reasonable trading conditions, uh, teaching backward China how to enter the modern age, you know, look at Japan's reaction, and Japan will be a model to reformers and revolutionaries in China. But then we'll look at how this gets applied to the Taiping rebels, foreigners trying to be neutral, so they need to see if the Taiping rebels respect the status of foreigners, uh, but also remembering the pivotal role of feeling respected or disrespected foreign powers resorting to force against China all the time, because that they feel like that's the only thing that the Chinese can understand. You know, I beat him because he understands the fist. Today we're drawing, again, largely on Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. So let's start by looking at the problems the Chinese were facing. They're not standing on their own two feet under their own power. I mean, mostly the Qing government is able to carry on, but they're not doing whatever they want on their own terms because they've got all these treaties forced on them by foreign military action. You know, they're not able to uphold their own sovereignty according to their own methods. They're not competent in modern military and commercial efforts, so that, that's a problem. You'll have Chinese companies that emerge, but all the foreign companies kind of control a lot of the things going on outside China, though Chinese companies are making themselves indispensable to foreign traders you know, operating on the Chinese coast, uh, there's nothing like local power to, you know, to get, you know, to get local supremacy. And then there's uh, pressure on the Chinese state to get up to speed and recover their own dignity and sovereignty. Last week, we talked about the Qing commissioner signing treaties with foreigners in the city of Tianjin, you know, and so the, this is so the foreigners didn't have to march all the way to Beijing. You know, so it's, it was kind of good, you know, nice for them, but also relieving for the Chinese because if the foreigners had come all the way to Beijing, they might have sacked the place, which they will eventually do, incidentally. The commissioner returned to the emperor and suggested that the treaties were just to make the foreigners go away. They're just pieces of paper. The foreigners were supposed to return in a year with ratified treaties, and of course the emperor is hoping that that's not going to happen. But of course, it is going to happen. It's beyond the scope of this episode, but they are going to come back with ratified treaties. 
for foreign publics, uh, their views were you know, kind of, oh my goodness. Uh, the British public, you know, might have wanted even more force to have been used you know, if they, and the thing is, if they just wait a little while, they'll get it because foreign powers will be intervening in China again. Uh, the American public saw it, you know, as seen in quotations from newspapers in Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, as they saw it as bringing the Chinese around to wiser policies, making the only argument the Chinese could understand, you know, that being superior force, opening China to missionary work, which the missionaries think is good, but it'll take some convincing for the Chinese to become convinced of that. And for American neutrality, uh, that's a, a sign of weakness rather than some sort of moral rectitude, because you know others are doing the work of bringing China around while America is picking up the rewards. It's like, you know, here we are getting a ride or you know, borrowing money all the time, but we're not giving a ride or lending money to our friends. You know, so then that makes the, you know, the new world power America look weak. Well, the civil, the American Civil War will show what military potential the United States has. But that's beyond the scope of any of this podcast, really. Zooming in on Japan here. Okay, so after the First Opium War in 1839-1842, the Japanese elites saw this, and they had some time to anticipate the arrival of foreign ships. So when American Commodore Matthew Perry shows up with a naval fleet in 1853, Japan you know, voluntarily signed a trade agreement. When the British fleet that had just blasted the Dagu forts showed up in Japan in 1858, the Japanese were ready. They had a precedent in the treaty with the Americans. It's like, yeah, we've done something like this for somebody like you before, so here's another one. And they had an example of what would happen if they resisted. And the Japanese even went as far as to fire a salute in honor of the British representative, Lord Elgin. And this set Lord Elgin up in advance to remember the visit to Japan way, way better in comparison to his experience in China. And later on, the Japanese are going to modernize like crazy. In like 20 or 30 years, they're going to join the foreign powers, taking advantage of Chinese weakness. They'll represent themselves on the same level as the European powers to Chinese authorities. They'll demand similar diplomatic privileges, and this, despite their history as a vassal state of the Chinese. And... You know, all at once, they're going to be another foreign oppressor in China, but they're also going to be a model to Chinese revolutionaries, an Asian state that stood up to the Europeans. Then Lord Elgin, you know, he 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 blasted the he blasted the stuffing out of the Dagu forts, and signed treaties with with China. Then he he's going. So he goes over to Japan to sign some treaties there. Then he comes back to test whether in all of the Qing Empire the new treaties are going to hold good. But he's also going to need to test how it'll go over with the Taiping because they do control a lot of the country and a lot of the country out of which the products are coming that British traders are trying to get. Uh, and so Britain is holding a position of neutrality in the conflict between the Qing and the Taiping. And so 
you know, if the Taiping don't respect these treaties or they don't respect the status of foreigners, it it kind of puts the British neutrality, uh, it kind of puts some question marks over it. Because um, then, you know, they're, they're treating one side as a legitimate authority while the other side is like somebody they're trying to ignore. This is going to be a critical question for the Taiping as well. Um, China's suffering because they didn't manage outside powers as equals, or at any rate, somebody they could give what the foreigners were asking for, and then, you know, still have, you know, be in the driver's seat of their own international affairs. Um, and China's having to seriously, seriously update how they interact with foreign countries. And the Taiping are looking to replace the current dynasty. For the Taiping, the the question is what will win the traditional Chinese notion of China's place in the world, you know, that the uh, unenlightened barbarians come to them for enlightenment, or are they going to have a new understanding of sovereignty in line with international, that is, Western standards? Later revolutions, you know, the nationalists, the Guomindang with Sun Yat-sen, Chiang Kai-shek, they'll emerge as a modern movement upgraded with an upgraded understanding of how international affairs work, so they'll be figuring out how to get rid of the treaties with uh, foreign powers and everything, but you know, they, they have the modern state apparatus as opposed to the old Chinese imperial system, however it managed to model on to the, the present. Um, the communists will be the local branch of a worldwide movement, and they'll advance Chinese sovereignty, but you know, they, they don't have some sort of transcendent uniqueness as being Chinese. They have a some sort of allegiance to an ideological, ideological system outside of China. We'll see how this works with the Taiping. So in late autumn 1858, Lord Elgin went up the Yangtze to see Hanko, which is modern Wuhan, which is very, very seriously far inland. And he's trying to see if the Qing officials would respect the treaty. And he's trying to see if he can learn something of rebel-held territory, see how rebels would respond to British traveling on the river. And he noted the extreme desolation everywhere there had been fighting. As he sailed downriver, he uh, sent, well, upriver, really, he sent a gunboat ahead with a white flag of truce. The white flag of truce meant nothing to the Taiping, and so they fired on the British ships, and the Taiping suspected the British fleet of being Qing forces. Uh, very Either side was trying to uh, get foreign-built ships for their navy, forget at what point, so it would be reasonable for the Taiping to, suggest, to suspect that maybe the Qing had bought foreign ships or something. And in fact, Qing forces were trying to kind of sneak in behind the British fleet to make their own way up the river. The Taiping fired on British ships, and the British bombarded rebel fortifications in retaliation. And so the after the Taiping realized who it was, they communicated. They apologized for initially firing on British ships. Then they asked you know, the British for help in fighting the Qing. They later sent gifts. Um, in December, Lord Elgin received a letter from Hong Xiuquan, the heavenly king himself, asking him to join the Taiping cause. Uh, the words quoted in Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom are, 
you know, foreign younger brothers of the Western Ocean. You know, it's interesting. It's nice that it's brother, but younger? That will uh, come back to that point. Other communications, you know, came asking for cannon and small arms, which the British uh, politely declined to give. Um, in communication with the Taiping, there was also the difficulty of apparent shared Christianity. Uh, the apparent shared belief and openness to outsiders led some foreigners to believe that maybe the Taiping would give foreign powers what they had wanted from China for so long. You know, but neutrality meant that they you know, they, they, they just made an agreement with the Qing, and so they needed to kind of balance things with the Taiping. And then there's the question of whether the Taiping were really Christian. The later nationalists were doing modern government, dealing with international affairs in a standard fashion. The communists were dealing with, you know, the world communist movement. But the Taiping were their own thing. Uh, the let's take a look at the real Christianity conversation. There are many different kinds of Christianity around the world. Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, a few other varieties. Um, even these that deny recognition to each other as being fully legitimate branches of Christianity, they have ways to acknowledge some of the common ground that they have. Mutual recognition of certain shared teachings like the Trinity, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, shared history or shared ethos and worship, shared saints, like with the Catholic and the Orthodox, they see similarities in the structure of their worship services. The Protestants look to old Catholic and Orthodox saints for some of their church history and some of their uh, their studies for understanding the historical development of some teachings. And they all have the Bible, some a little more Bible and some a little less, but there's some way to recognize each other. Well, the Taiping fell short in two ways. One, their doctrines were not compatible with conventional historical Christianity, and that it's not even a Chinese emphasis that would be otherwise compatible. The teachings diverged at a radical level. Uh, you know, like Jesus doesn't have brothers, not in the, like, you know, dad had one son and then dad had another son kind of brothers. Uh, so Hong Xiuquan's claim to be the younger brother of Jesus doesn't, doesn't work. And two, their religion and their political movement is really, they're inextricably linked. And so denying Hong Xiuquan was to go against the Taiping leadership. I've seen the view, I forget where, um, that they would have done better to appeal for foreign aid on other bases than that of shared Christianity. Like the nationalists in China later are going to have some appeal other than, you know, we are, you know, we believe all the same things that you do. Uh, the, the nationalists, it's going to be really interesting once they get, once we get it to them, they were receiving help from the Russian Bolsheviks. In setting up their movement, you know, for a for an anti-communist party, it's fascinating that they were Leninist. So that's much further down the line. So the like the, the Taiping, 
they're you know in autumn in the heavenly kingdom they there's a recounting of the extensive dialogue between the the representatives of foreign powers and the taiping about you know what made for true christian teaching so here's a here's a further point the taiping were often from lower classes rougher manners than the qing representatives had you know even being from very different cultures, sophistication recognizes sophistication. And all that fed into the impressions that the British representatives took away from their encounters with Taiping representatives. Whereas missionaries deliberately went to the poor, lowly, and outcast, government officials moved in circles in which tact, delicacy, and polish were an an irreplaceable factor. So even if government officials were Christians, they needed something other than just these people are talking about Jesus in order to make arrangements with the Taiping. And it's interesting, Englishmen were criticizing the writing style of letters from Taiping representatives. So it's like if you have foreigners questioning the style of your Chinese writing, that's one, it shows that foreign understanding of China had advanced quite a bit, but also it shows you that, yeah, okay, a lot of, you know, more people can write than the ones who are selling books on the New York Times bestseller list. You know, anybody can write a shopping list, but not just anybody can write a formal note to a diplomatic envoy. A historical point concerning who you have tense relationships with versus who you're actually going to start shooting is uh, is going to... Is, is, we'll look at some other examples. Because English representatives wrangled with the Qing, but they also despised the Taiping. You know, so King John, you know, like uh, the, the uh, of Robin Hood fame, who ruled from 1199 to 1216, he had all the European powers and the authority of the Pope against him, but he made a deal with the Pope and the Pope's allies to have them help him against the English barons. And, you know, in World War II, the USSR, they made a really sneaky treaty with the de- with their deadly enemy, the Nazis, but then when the Nazis invaded, they pivoted and allied with Britain and the, and the United States. And then, of course, you know, the the Cold War happened after because there wasn't an ideological reconciliation after that. But you know, the people you have all these arguments with, those may be the people you actually make a deal with, whereas the, the other people, they're the people you shoot. Uh, let's look at the conclusions of Lord Elgin's trip. So Lord Elgin, uh, he... One of the things is that smugglers would come back from Taiping lands with loads of cargo, tea, silk, pottery, all that. And some in Britain thought he wasted an opportunity to open trade with the Taiping. Because the the Taiping were kind of controlling some of the really economically valuable areas down there in southeast China. But it wasn't... We'll see what Lord, Lord Elgin thought. He had two views. Uh, one, he thought there was no popular support for the Taiping, but he also observed there was not really popular support for the Qing either. 
Um, but then he further observed that no one could tell which side caused all the devastation that he saw as he went up and down the Yangtze. The Taiping-controlled population, he further observed, was going about their daily business. They were industrious, they were, you know, sober, taking care of things. All along, Lord Elgin was disturbed by the British intervention in China. You know, first, you know, he came and did the storming of the Dagu Fort, so it's kind of like, he did his duty, but he didn't want to do that. He negotiated the treaty. He went over to Japan to Japan to sign a treaty with them. He came back for the Yangtze cruise. Well, a uh, group of merchants in Shanghai thanked Lord Elgin for the new treaties and the new opportunities that they opened up. Elgin blasted them. He, he called them out on their, you know, on their greed. You know, he called them to consider their morality. You know, like if if we break down their ancient boundaries only to enrich ourselves, like how does that make us look? I mean, like it's one thing if you, you know, invade a country to remove a dictator and then, you know, somehow better than America did in Iraq or Vietnam, you somehow install a just government. Like, like okay, um you know, there could be some justification for that, I guess. But if we come and invade their country and only use this to get ourselves trade concessions, that makes us look really bad. One of the points I had read earlier in Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom is that the some of the foreign powers, when they're having moral qualms, is that they fear what the, you know, what exerting domination over other nations will do to their own morality. You see this in uh, narr in the autobiography of Friedrich Douglass, was it Narrative of the Life of an American Slave, um, that he observed that being a slave owner was bad for the slave owners. So it's interesting that despite these brutal imperial predations being you know worked on china there was a conscience in some of the people involved so so there's that they still did it but i guess they felt bad about it that's something well the let's look at foreign activity in china and how this looks at you know with chinese revolutions it's difficult when country A wants something from country B, but they have a hard time giving each other exactly what they want. You know, Lord Elgin's exchange with Shanghai merchants recalls why the Opium War happened in the first place. There was no ability between the two countries to directly negotiate, scaling up trade, settling disputes, and all that. Um, so one country turned to force of arms to settle the matter. And that sets a precedent, and it goes on. So if negotiations stall again, send in another gunboat, send in another landing party of marines. Uh, and so they just keep doing that. One of the driving motivations for revolutions after the Taiping Rebellion will be trying to bring out successful resistance to imperialistic ventures in China. So all at once, China is struggling to restore its own sovereignty and upgrade its power to be in line with modern international standards, but it's also going to be 
as time goes on, struggling through a revolution. And it's kind of funny that the, the foreign powers that are preying upon China, they're also their enclaves and even their own you know, home territory. Like Sun Yat-sen is going to have an interesting few episodes in Britain. The They're going to be the shelter for the Chinese revolutionaries, first working against the Qing dynasty, but then as the different revolutionary powers contend with each other after the fall of the Qing dynasty, the, the foreign concession areas are going to be places where revolutionaries can hide out. Well, as the war drags on, as foreigners figure out exactly how they'd like to deal with the Taiping, we're going to see how foreign support for the Qing and how Chinese figuring out how to fight the Taiping are going to work together to you know, further stimulate Han national identity and the idea of, yeah, just maybe these Qing could go, but still the foreigners are the ones that we really want to make sure that we're getting rid of. I'm really looking forward to when we get to start looking at Zheng Guofan, the uh, Chinese Confucian scholar, become a general, and how he orchestrated the defeat of the Taiping. Um, I need to look at where we are in the narrative. We're not going to keep, we're, like, we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty details of the Taiping Rebellion. Uh, we need to see how it sets the stage for the later revolutions that are going to happen. Well, thanks for coming along for this episode. I've been your host, Nathan Bennett. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can join the substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. And uh, please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. See you next week. Music